Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Regrowing brains using special materials and slimes that have their own memory. Now, what defines sentience thought? Is it responding to a stimuli, remembering what's happened in the past and taking some complex action? If that's the case, just how is a slime managing to do that? Plus, ways we can use 3D printed structures and special materials to repair damaged parts of brains. One of the fundamentally difficult questions for biological researchers, even computer scientists, is trying to define consciousness. You might have heard talk about AI in science fiction movies, how they can gain sentience and then become their own beings, able of their own thoughts and their own identities, wishes, desires, hatred of humans, for example, and taking over the world being a common sci-fi trope. But all of this is predicated around the idea that an AI program could gain enough ability to form its own memories, form its own opinions, form its own ideas. And this is effectively an extrapolation by us humans writing stories of what might happen in the future, where something that we don't think has these properties like we do or animals do, knowledge of its environment, ability to influence the environment and make decisions and plans based on its prior experience. This kind of basis of thought normally forms most people's definitions for consciousness or sentience. And this is a big challenge because it's not an easy thing to nail down. It's not an easy thing to research, especially when nature throws in your face some really strange examples which push the boundaries of our understanding of these very definitions. And that's exactly what researchers from Germany, from the Technical University of Munich, TUM, and the Max Planck Institute for Dynamics and Self-Organization. Now, two researchers, Myrna Kramer and Professor Karen Allen, have been diving into this topic, what makes something sentient, but not in a, such a high-level philosophical way. In fact, they're looking at something really, really simple. Because this simple creature, if you wish to call it that, possesses some really strange properties, which help us understand these very contents and really push the boundaries of what we think about such basic things like forming memories, and making plans for the future. Now, what they've been investigating is a specific type of mould. It's a slime mould with the name Sarum polycephalon. And what is fascinating about this mould is that it seems to form and save memories, even though it's a mould, doesn't have any nervous system. And despite all of this, It seems to, at least as far as they can identify, save and store memories and use this to guide its decision-making. Now, these researchers in Germany have been investigating the ability of this mould to form memories and make plans. That's amazing in of itself, but this mould has been puzzling researchers for ages. Sarum polyphocephalum has been basically seen as a really interesting edge case where there's a single-cell organism. But because it's a fungi or a mould, it's not like uh, an amoeba or something like that. It's very broad. It's got a large network of flexible, different body plans and bits. It's kind of just an amalgam of something rather than a small structured organism with a simple body plan. If you think about something with a flagella flinging away, you can understand how one of those will self-propel itself around to hunt for food. But this slime mould 
is not really an organism with a flagella that's able to move itself around nimbly. It's much worse than this, and weirder. It's just a lump, this large amoeba. And when I say large, on a microorganism scale, it's huge. It can stretch to several centimeters, and even some weird cases, meters long, which is insane. It's the largest single cell organism on Earth. And it exists not as a simple thing with a standard body plan, but rather as a as mesh of interconnected tubes for these intricate networks. And yet, despite all of this, it seems to undertake some pretty complex behaviours. But researchers have shown that this little mould is able to detect changes in its environment, and based on those changes, take actions. That might be fleeing or that might be hunting for food, using a feedback mechanism. That is pretty impressive for a mold. And that's why researchers, and one of the many reasons, in fact, that researchers have been studying this particular mold, because it's just so fascinating. Every time researchers prod it or examine it, it shows more and more signs of intelligence. And explaining how it has this intelligence and memory is what really drove these researchers from Germany. So what the researchers Kramer and Alum were trying to get their heads around was exactly how this weird organism is able to make and solve complex problems. Take it, for example, a simple test of intelligence. Well, finding your way on the shortest path through a maze. When it was shown that this mold could do this, it made a lot of waves and shocked a lot of people because it was a mold with intelligence. But what's interesting about that example, even though we've known about it for a while, is how does that actually get stored? How do you store that information and process it? With a rat running through a maze, as a simple example, you know that the rat, mice or rat has a brain, the nervous system, and inside of that is creating and forming memories. If you wanted to think about a computer doing the same task, well, we know computers have variable tables and memory banks and hard drives and, and lots of other concepts for storing information in certain formats and then processing that information to help it solve a task. We understand these biologically and electrically, but when it comes to this mold, we really don't understand how this Tublia network actually forms, creates, and processes all of this information. Because this Tublia network constantly undergoes fast, rapid reorganization, growing new tubes, disintegrating other ones. And it doesn't have a central nervous system. It doesn't have an organizing cluster or center. That's even stranger, because it means that where do researchers start to look? Well, what they discovered is, well, you can actually find the way, a mechanism that it uses to weave memories, such as things like an encounter with food, directly into the architecture, the structure of the network, and stores this information through this structure. researchers like Karen Allen, when she was heading this group of biological researchers in Munich, they were trying to study in particular how this mold reacted to the presence of food. And what they saw is its migration and feeding patterns in the organism. When they exposed this organism to a food source, they just observed a distinct imprint of the food source on the pattern of this mesh, of this network, of this organism. They could see the pattern of thicker and thinner tubes of the network, 
even though the food had long gone. In this way, it had sort of remembered the presence of the food through weaving itself into the structure. Now, the fact that it made this change to its architecture, change to its structure, was very significant because although the changing is always happening in this network reorganization of this large interconnected series of tubes, this mold is constantly rearranging itself. So when there's an area that stays constant, some persistence, that is a significant finding. That's what these researchers used as their leaping off point to further explore this imprinting mechanism. Because as Professor Aaron Allen says herself, given Polycephalum's highly dynamic network reorganization, the persistence of this imprint sparked the idea that the network architecture itself could serve as a memory of the past. Now, if you wanted a way to capture one of your own memories, you might write it down, a letter, or a large collection of them, a book. Now, someone might stumble across this. They may not know what the words say, they may not know what's inside or who it belongs to, but they could understand potentially this is capturing some idea, some memory, some thought. Another way of thinking about it is a way of arranging the structures or things in the room. They've arranged in a certain way. They may be rearranged and moved around, but there might be a certain arrangement that is persistent. The chairs around your table, for example. These all could give clues to someone observing the situation what they are used for or maybe indicate some sort of meaning to them. That's effectively what the researchers are doing here with the persistence of a structure in the network of this mold and how it relates to the food. So now they had a clue. Now they had an idea for the mechanism that might be used. They could refine this and actually clarify exactly what's happening. They used microscopic observations of the changes in this network and they tried to release or trigger through food or other inputs a change. And what they observed was when this mold encounters food, it triggers a release of chemical that travels from the location where the food was found all the way through the organism, softens the tubes in this organism's network, and makes the whole organism reorient its migration towards the food. It's doing this on a chemical basis. Basically, it found food, the food releases the chemical, that chemical spreads through the network, and the process of it spreading helps it realize that there's food there, and it makes that change in its motion. Now, because the chemical release actually softens the network, you end up with this imprint. The gradual softening is where the existing imprints of previous food sources come into play, and where information is stored and retrieved, as author Myrna Kramer points out, past feeding events are embedded in the hierarchy of tube diameters, specifically in the arrangement of thick and thin tubes in the network. So this pattern of thick and thin tubes gets created by this chemical that's released whenever it discovers food, but it also then stores and has that basically saved in a log from all this stretching and squishing, stretching and squishing. And that creates this series of imprints in the organism itself that helps it remember food. That means when it sees another release of chemical that say food might be here, it can compare it to what it's seen before, basically because of the way the structure itself stores and is changed when a new set of chemical is released. This is an amazing concept. It's basically using a fundamental process, distribution of a chemical throughout an organism, and using the way in which that chemical release changes the network itself to act as effectively as a memory. 
Now, we often talk about things like plastic or metal, other materials, especially polymers, having a memory. You might have heard of memory metal or metamaterials that can be 4D, snap back into a shape they were in before. That's where you have some physical adjustment that it remembers the position it was before. It's kind of like this with this series of tubes where the trigger instead of heat or another energy source is actually chemical based, but it also builds this memory bank. And again, it's in a living organism, which is all pretty amazing. It's such a simple and elegant solution for a large, very large, single-celled organism and shows how it's able to achieve such great levels of intelligence and sophistication, despite being fundamentally very, very simple. Now, this is amazing, not only for the implications about the development of life, the solving of mysteries of how this mold works, or lots of other fantastic applications of biology. It's also very helpful to understand how you can store and save and transmit information in materials, in robotics, especially soft robotics, that could navigate through a space or complex environment, spread out, and pass that information back quickly, and also have some sort of meta-memory. This is a fascinating research from the Technical University of Munich, published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Lead author, of course, was Murda Kramer, with assistance from Professor Katrin Allen from TUM. finding out about a slime mold that is able to form its own complicated network to act like a brain using a complex interconnected structure and chemical release. But what if we could help an actual brain using some special materials, synthetic grown materials that could help repair and heal a damaged brain, damaged neurocells? For example, maybe someone suffering from a neurodegenerative brain disease or a spinal cord injury. If there was a way to grow these neurons using a patient's own cells, well, it would make the job of a brain surgeon <laughs> well, or a neuroscientist much, much easier. And that's exactly what researchers from Northwestern University have been diving into, trying to find a highly bioactive material that can be 3D printed that could be used to grow these repairing cells that could help heal damage inside a neuron. Now, this is pretty amazing research, and it builds on some work out of the laboratory of Samuel Stupp at his work at Northwestern University. Now, lead author on this paper is Alexander Elderbrook, and it was published in the journal Advanced Science. Of course, involved a large team of collaborators at, now at its core, what they've been investigating is a new printable biomaterial that can mimic the properties of brain tissue. Now, why that's significant is because this can act as a platform that can be used as part of regenerative medicine and almost precision medicine and regenerative medicine together to help regrow damaged parts of the brain to treat all kinds of neurodegenerative disease. Now, it's not enough to just get a nice material, print up some nice cells and throw it into a damaged brain. That's not going to fix anything. You need the cells themselves to conduct their own self-assembly. Now, this would help them build themselves into a useful structure. Effectively, if these molecules could self-assemble inside the material, you could change or modify the structure or the function of the systems on the nanoscale and build it up to exactly what you want. 
That idea was published by Stupp and his team in the journal Science all the way back in 2018. They showed that materials can be designed with these highly dynamic molecules that can be programmed to migrate for long distances, travel through the body, organize themselves to form large superstructures or bundles or nanofibers. This really targeted precision motion and design in the materials themselves made a pretty incredible platform or groundwork that could be used and adapt, in this case, to neuron growth. So since they proved that they could make these programmable structures, they found a new way to use that and applying it specifically to enhance the growth of neurons, which is really important when trying to tackle neurodegenerative diseases. Diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are tremendously damaging, and at the moment we have very little treatments for. And in fact, we can't do very much, especially for things also like spinal cord injury. When we have huge amounts of neuron damage, getting them to regrow and reorganize themselves back into functioning condition is a very, very difficult science and a very difficult task for a lot of neuroscientists and doctors to try and tackle. So they made, as part of this research, which they outlined in their paper, a new material. It's created by mixing two liquids that quickly can become rigid as a result of interactions inside host chemistry. Now, what they use is actually a concept called host guess that mimics the key lock interactions that are often seen inside proteins. And as a result, the concentrations of these interactions in microscale regions can be built up to actually become a large walking molecule. Now, this sounds nuts, but that's effectively what they've made, an agile molecule that can cover distance thousands of times larger than themselves and also latch on to other things along the way to form a large amalgamated structure. Now, what you end up with on a microscopic scale is a transformation of the structure from what looks like a chunk of noodles slopped all over the place into a formed rope-like tight bundle of noodle. This self-assembly is amazing. Now, biomaterials that are often used in medicine like polymer hydrogels can't do this kind of self-assembly. And they certainly don't have the capability to move themselves around inside that assembly. It's a pretty unique concept that they've developed here. Now, as these assembled rope-like bundle starts to move around, this will form an even larger superstructure. It starts to open up pores of the cells that allow it to penetrate and interact with other bioactive signals. You can then blend these in. They have to give it some guidance and structure in the beginning. They use 3D printing to do this, but you know it's locked together in forming this large structure. But the mechanical process of 3D printing kind of breaks that interlock and enables it to flow. But once that breaking part from the 3D printing is gone, you, it starts to re-solidify itself into the macroscopic shape. And it's restored through that process of self-assembly. This enables the 3D printing of structures with layers that harbor different types of neural cells. And yes, you might have broken the structure a little bit to print it, but it pulls itself back together. That is pretty amazing. Now you've got this reassembled and assembling superstructure and you've got regions of the material as well that are bioactive. And that's important because the combination of these two things give you a structure with defined properties but also something that can interact with what's around it. In this case probably tissue. Now neurons are stimulated by a protein in the central nervous system, BDNF. Now this is important because it helps promote the growth of new connections in the synapses, allowing the neurons to be more plastic. Now if you could find a way to inject or promote the growth of this particular protein right at the 
damaged points, well, then you could get targeted delivery. Now, that's what actually they did. They One of the materials they embedded in this new material is a molecule that mimics this protein because it uses a similar receptor. So effectively, they provide an off-brand copy, a way of instruction of helping the neurons take a signal in that could be then used to, for the neuron to promote regrowth and fixing of the issue. Now, it's been shown that they can do this with neurons, and that's pretty amazing for regenerative medicine, particularly for neurological conditions, especially degenerative ones. But another area they're willing to tackle is applying it to general tissue, like cartilage and heart tissue. Because often, once those are damaged, incredible to impossible to heal, particularly after you look like heart attack, for example. Fixing the cells, the damaged tissue from a heart attack can be near impossible to do. Now, if you imagine where you could implant these tissues in, they could then fix the structure at the same time and do a lot of good stuff to help keep it stronger and help repair it. But they could also help encourage those cells that are still there to restore lost functions, to heal themselves, and to build the mechanisms they need to help promote regrowth. That is pretty amazing. That's one of the promises of regenerative medicine. Now, are we there yet? No. And is this paper highlighting how it could be done? Kind of, but it's not actually to the point where it's an actual treatment. But as a platform and a concept for regenerative medicine, it is incredibly powerful because it shows you what you can achieve through a material that has memory and can help regrow parts of a damaged brain. It's pretty impressive science, published in the journal Advanced Science. Now, lead author was Alexandra Elderbrock and a large team of collaborators working in the lab, Sam Stroop, at Northwestern University. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From repairing damaged parts of brains with regenerative medicine to ways we can understand why a slime is able to form memories and keep them over time. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.